Welcome to the Managing the Future of Work podcast from Harvard Business School. I'm your host, Bill Kerr. This episode is one of a series of special dispatches on the sweeping effect that COVID-19 is having on society, the economy, and the future of work. In addition to our regular podcast episodes, we'll be bringing you shorter and more frequent interviews with business leaders, policymakers, and leading scholars on the coronavirus. Noah Smith is a Bloomberg opinion columnist and one of the top influencers in economics. A former finance professor, Noah brings to his readers the bottom line economic realities of COVID-19, the ups and downs of policy responses, and the movements towards economic and social justice. Noah joins me today to discuss the pandemic, the economy, race, politics, and how to make the most sense of these tumultuous times. Welcome to the podcast, Noah. Hey, thanks for having me on. Noah, your Twitter following is about equal to the national debt. So maybe you can give us a sense to get started of how you approach selecting and researching your topics. And also for us, you know, what's been different over the last three months as COVID's really taken over our lives? Right. So um, I don't know that my Twitter following is a function of my intelligent topic choice, because I think it's more a function of me just not having a life and having been on Twitter for 10 years. And I think that you know, Twitter is this thing where you... You, you mix a lot of fun personal stuff, no, along with the professional. So we'll give you both the life part and also the Twitter following. <laughs> well, um, anyway, so I, I mean, I have several regular kind of hobby horse issues that I like to talk about a lot. One of those was sort of macroeconomics and the changes in that uh, part of the economics profession. Another one is the shift to empirical economics from you know, a more purely theory-based kind of discipline. Um, and then there were, you know, policy issues like immigration, um, uh, sort of, you know, safety net improvements, um, urban land use policy. And there's, you know, about maybe uh, six or seven of these hobby horses that I have. So that, and that's pretty much it. But, um, you know, as an economics pundit, you're, you're sort of expected to be this generalist where you can weigh in on anything from, you know, like India-China conflict to, you know, where to get lunch. And so that's, you know, that's lucky for me. It's a, it's a, it's a form of privilege, obviously. But it's, um, but it basically means that there's so many economics-related or tangentially economics-related controversies that I can just weigh in on, that it's never a problem finding something to write about. As you think about COVID in particular, it's got obviously the medical dimension as well as the the economics uh, side of this. Has there been more of a need to cross over these disciplinary boundaries or be able to think outside the traditional economist uh, toolkit to to write about these topics? Um, I mean, so that's an interesting question because, uh, so first of all, a number of economists started trying to play amateur epidemiologist. In fact, a few are still doing this. And the results were not very good. You saw some economists create a model of optimal lockdowns that assumed that lockdowns are entirely responsible for the slowdown in economic activity. Um, and then inventing a kind of a, a new kind of an epidemiological model that, you know, professionals had never invented that allowed them to come up with unique policy conclusions that were pretty unworkable in real life. And so I think that was an example of a, a bad foray into epidemiology. And it was one of several. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, as we saw in the financial crisis, a lot of times the relevant experts are, when they deal with a new situation, 
that they hadn't modeled or they hadn't really prepared to deal with, they can make a lot of mistakes and it can help to have an intelligent outside perspective. So we saw that with you know, macroeconomists and financial economists in 2008 and 2009. And I think now uh, we've seen it with public health people too, most especially with the issue of masks. And so at the beginning of the epidemic, we had the WHO, the CDC, and a number of public health experts telling us not to wear masks, masks don't work, blah, blah, blah. And it was pretty clear from the outset that there was something fishy about this advice and there was something wrong with this. And a lot of sort of independent people looked into it, found that masks really do work. And now the entire story has changed. Now all the experts say wear a mask. WHO and CDC now say wear a mask and were very slow and reluctant to come around, but, but finally did. And so in that case, it was the public that restrained the experts and um, belatedly helped correct a, a, a disastrous mistake. Um, that probably lost a lot of lives, actually. So there's this balance where, uh, you know, when when non-experts pretend to be experts, they can cause a lot of damage. But by evaluating and sort of critiquing and investigating the the expert consensus, they can provide a lot of value. That's a great way of putting it. Where you're where you're challenging a little bit the presumptions that people are holding, or what the the way you've always approached the topic, but also not thinking suddenly you know everything about about something and, and should throw out all the past uh, wisdom. Let, let me talk to you a little bit about the uh, the forced shutdown of the economy and also the virus spreading. You've written about this in a whole bunch of different ways, so I'm not going to ask you to summarize everything, but instead just surface for the listeners to this uh, podcast, what are a couple of things you think are underappreciated uh, by business leaders, by policymakers, by the general public about COVID and its its implications for the economy that you would you would surface up and, and say, guys, you really need to pay attention to this? To be honest, I don't know because I think that people are really paying attention to most of the stuff that they ought to be, be paying attention to. Uh, they're really doing a good job of um, covering all the angles. And I think part of that is just because we were in lockdown, coronavirus was taking over the whole world and there was nothing really else to write about. Now there's protests and racial issues uh, and some other things to write about. But, you know, people really scoured the entire landscape of policy issues. Um, now there's some new emerging things that, you know, people are just now starting to talk about, for example, this risk of zombie companies. The idea that if the Fed simply lends massive amounts of money to every single business, at what point do those loans cut off? And if there are sort of these you know, structural adjustments after COVID, what happens then? So structural adjustments, for example, would be like, suppose that COVID produces a long lasting shift from going to the movie theater to watching Netflix at home on your TV uh, or laptop or whatever. Um, if that is a durable change, then, uh, then um, at what point does the Fed stop lending money to movie theaters and let those people become unemployed and let the you know let that the investment stop and all, stuff like that? And um, the Fed is very politically cautious; it doesn't want to be seen as having caused a recession or any negative economic effects. And so the question is, will there be tremendous political pressure on the Fed to essentially keep up loans to businesses forever? In Japan, we have actually seen that happen. Uh, we've seen the central bank, massive pressure on the central bank to continue loans to essentially everybody under the name of quantitative easing. If that decreases productivity over the long term, then you could have a decrease, uh, then, then that could cancel out any inflationary pressure. 
from low interest rates. Usually we think that low interest rates cause inflation. But if uh, if productivity goes down, then that takes away the inflationary pressure, but also means sort of this worse off economy in the long run. Uh, whereas if we we let the, the companies die that need to die in order to produce the new economy, the new more efficient economy, then, uh, you know, then then we'd get healthier, higher productivity in the future. So we might find ourselves in this sort of trap. And there's there's indications that Japan found itself in this sort of trap in the 1990s after their financial bust, after a lot of the banks there kept uh, businesses on a lifeline long past when they should have been allowed to restructure. And so so that's one issue that's kind of emerging right now that I think a few people are just starting to pay attention to. Um, I think that the links between COVID and social unrest are not well understood and not well examined. Ideas like that, you know, do like pandemic lockdown stress and its effect on social unrest will be something that people will be looking at going forward. I don't think it's that people have overlooked or ignored these. I think that these are just recently emerging things that people haven't fully looked at yet. Yeah. So you think about the the racial uh, justice protests that are ongoing. Um, how do you think the summer is going to play out? And also as the uh, election draws nearer, that will happen in November. Uh, what's the what's the possibility for us to get sort of political and social alignment around kind of reforms to these to these tough issues? I do think that police reform is going to be a uh, popular sort of unifying cause in America, which is great because we've we've needed that for decades. You know, people have really been upset with the way that policing works in America since I was a kid. You know, that whole that whole police apparatus was really built in response to the uh, the unrest of the 1960s. And um, and I think it the time had come to dismantle it. But I think, uh, you know, it just sort of proceeded on autopilot. And I think that um, that's now going to be reexamined. So that's good. And you, you've already seen a lot of cities start to start to do these police reforms. And I think you have a mindset that more than the usual sort of cosmetic body camera and bias training stuff is going to be necessary. And I think that to some degree, cities will have to figure that out for themselves. But there'll be national pressure, uh, you know, on every city to do deep reforms. And that's good. Um, I think that uh, people between the bungling of the coronavirus response and the, uh, you know, Trump's sort of disastrous failed attempt to get the military to stand in for police, the polls, you know, are consistent with the idea of a broad national nine point swing from 2016, uh, which was as close to 50-50 as you can possibly get which would be enough to essentially win all the swing states for Biden. We'll see if that holds through the, you know, the conventions are important. The debate debates are important. The economy is still going to take a long time to recover. You know, there's an initial rapid bounce back, but that's, I think, going to only be a partial bounce back. And the economy is still going to be in the dumps by the time election time rolls around. You know, it, it, no, in, in a lot of your writings, you've emphasized how the pandemic can increase uh, inequality. Can you talk us through some of those linkages and also what's the best policy responses to help counteract those those worrisome trends? Um, so there's a number of ways. Recessions always kind of increase inequality because uh, the poor get hurt more. Uh, you know, if, you, uh, if you're just living hand to mouth and you lose your job, that's worse than if your stocks go down. And, um, and the, uh, the sort of the most marginal workers are always the first to be fired uh, when bad times hit and the last to be hired when good times on, which is why it's important to have very long expansions, but that's a story for another day. Um, now, what's going to happen is that, uh, you know, 
people got really laid off in in sectors like retail, food service, uh, tourism, hospitality. Those are sectors with that disproportionately employ young people. Young people work as as you know waitstaff, uh, store clerks, hospitality people, etc. And those people got hurt the most. Uh, women got hurt more than men, actually. And so that's going to exacerbate generational inequalities. We've already seen millennials be, uh, you know, have have essentially much worse wealth outcomes than Generation Xers or boomers at the similar stage of life. Um, Generation Xers started slower than boomers in terms of building wealth, but eventually uh, mostly caught up. Millennials are not catching up at all. And this this feeling of generational warfare, I think, is going to intensify. And Generation Z is going to be like millennials, but more so. Um, and so we're going to have generational inequality and inequality by job type, in addition to the normal income inequality and wealth inequality that we see. And the question of how do we forestall that? Uh, there, I mean, one one way is just by getting everyone to back to work as fast as possible. But I think that uh, that's not going to do the trick. Obviously, um, one of the the things that we probably need to do is think about how to get wealth into young people's hands. And yes, that might we could do that with stocks. We could do that with a thing called a social wealth fund, where we basically buy stocks on behalf of young people. But I think that people are going to more feel that it's their wealth and really feel um, the autonomy and option value and power that comes from uh, holding wealth if it's housing. So in other words, I think we're going to need some big program of getting uh, young people to own houses really early in life. And Singapore does a really good job of this. So Singapore does, you know, this, this elaborate system of, of uh, you know, down payment assistance and, and house price supports and controls where they basically put houses into young people's hands really early to give people a stake in the economic system. It's really effective. And um, you know, we did that once with the GI Bill. We had this thing where we, uh, the entire um, World War II generation basically got to buy a house for cheap, often in the suburbs. And that uh, that really, um, and, and there was an echo of that in Vietnam, of course. And that, I think, created broad-based wealth, but it also created this toxic system of wealth building where we only did it once. And now, in order to cash out of that, all the... the um, all the baby boomers have to keep their house prices really high. So that's why they don't allow new housing construction or, you know, um, affordable housing or transit or anything that seems like it might decrease their property values because the boomers have all these houses that represent their entire nest eggs. And if we figure out some way to transfer those nest eggs into the hands of younger people so they can become younger people's nest eggs, those nest eggs for millennials and Gen Z, it's going to involve elaborate tax and transfer schemes that I think people haven't really faced up to yet, except for Elizabeth Warren, who actually has a plan to do something like this, but no one paid attention. Yeah. Uh, and and those, uh, you, in many of your writings, emphasize the local regulations for housing and these political economy challenges uh, when people want to block the expansion of housing in their backyard uh, and so forth. Uh, Noah, two other things that uh, I know you have thought a lot about are uh, universal basic income, UBI, and then also jobs guarantees. Uh, and they were been on and off the horizon, but clearly if this continues uh, with the unemployment uh, for you know uh, longer than, than the summer, there are gonna be ever more calls on this. 
give us a little bit of your sense about the efficacy of those two programs. So, um, you know, universal basic income, there's both theoretical and empirical reasons to believe that it doesn't kick, it doesn't stop people from working, which is really important because when you give people money, things like, you know, long-term unemployment insurance or, uh, you know, just or just sort of a welfare, you know, the the so-called dole that they used to have in, in European countries, it, it um, when you actually pay people not to work. They don't work, and that's not surprising at all. But universal basic income is better than that because it actually it uh, pays you regardless of whether you work or not. So you just have this extra boost. The one problem is so so first of all, universal basic income isn't universal because the taxes to pay for it are progressive. So it's actually a basic income that phases out at higher incomes and goes negative. And people don't realize that because they don't combine the tax and the transfer piece in their minds. So they think it's universal, but it's actually income-based because of the taxes to pay for it. Um, the MMT people who say that you don't need taxes to pay for things are silly and wrong. Um, but the problem is that universal basic income, if you try to make it you know, a full income that can actually replace a job, is way too high. And so imagine trying to give everybody like $30,000 a year. Um, and, you know, depending on where you put that tax cutoff, you could be looking at just, you know, multiplying the federal government spending by, you know, like large multiples. And so that and, and that's not going to work. Uh, everyone knows that's not going to work. However, a universal basic income that's just like, you know, a few thousand dollars a year is is expensive, but workable. And it could provide this kind of cushion that would allow people to pay for childcare, food, or, you know, whatever else they need. Um, the big problem with universal basic income is, is rent. So if, you know, if you give everybody, you know, $5,000 a year, and then landlords raise rent by $5,000 a year, all you've done is pay landlords out of tax money. That's stupid and bad. So there needs to be some sort of robust uh, method, you know, and, and so some people have suggested, oh, national rent control is a solution. Well, national rent control isn't very suited to local needs. And, you know, national rent control, if you set it too high, it can block construction in a lot of places. And if you set it too low, it just doesn't do anything. And so um, there's this, you know, it, it's sort of this tightrope policy that's that's hard to manage. So nobody really knows how you can, prevent landlords from, you know, all over the country from capturing the gains from universal basic income. That's a big problem. And an analogy is when we decided to have, give everybody student loans for college and tuition just went way up. Now everybody's got all this debt, you know, and college didn't get any cheaper at all. Instead, you know, it's just people are worse in debt now. And it's not inflationary, by the way. It's not, this, this is not inflation. It's, it's the rise in the price of this thing that you subsidize. Um, yeah, I mean, universal basic income might raise inflation, but the, the taxes will reduce that you use to pay for it will reduce the inflation and that'll be a wash. The thing is, um, prices will rise specifically for the things that the people you give the money to spend the most on. And that is rent that. So that's really what, what it's about. No, one of your uh, central topics is also immigration. And as we were recording this podcast, it seems imminent that the Trump administration is going to halt. Uh, the issuance of some new uh, skilled worker visas like H-1B or student work visas. I, I guess two-part question here. One, do you buy the argument that, that this can help save some jobs for Americans that are unemployed during this crisis? And second, what do you think is some of the long-term consequences of 
even if it's a 90 day or 120 day suspension of, of the visas? Um, so I let me be a little more general with my response to this question. So Trump was elected to stop immigration. Specifically, he was elected to stop non-white immigration, which is most has been most of our immigration for the last you know, 30 years or whatever. And Trump has largely succeeded, but he didn't succeed without help. Um, immigration to the United States is now going to go into a long-term pause, I believe. And here's the reasons. Number one, one of the biggest drivers of immigration to the United States was immigration from Mexico, as you know, as anyone over the age of like 20 knows. But um, immigration, large-scale immigration from Mexico stopped in 2007. In fact, it went in in net terms, it went into reverse. So actually, since 2007, more Mexican born people have been leaving the United States than coming in. And so essentially, Mex the Mexican immigration wave was already done. And that's due to falling fertility in Mexico, increasing incomes in Mexico. But that was the big first thing that reduced U.S. immigration uh, because a lot of those Mexican immigrants had been sort of low wage laborers. Um, the skill composition of American immigration shifted up. So, so you know, more and more immigration, in fact, now a, a, probably the dominant piece was, was high-skilled immigration. It was people with, uh, you know, um, with college degrees or, or with family with lots of college degrees or, you know, people called in to fill specific jobs, things like that started, had begun to dominate American immigration in the years since 2007. Therefore, it's not clear whether Trump was specifically biased against high-skilled immigration from the start or whether or not it's simply the most common form of immigration and thus the easiest for him to attack. Whatever it is, Trump's main effect will be to stop high-skilled immigration. But he did again, he didn't do it alone, so there's other factors going on here. So Trump has made it a lot harder for skilled immigrants to get visas, to study at U.S. universities, to get jobs at American companies. Uh, through a variety of sort of harassment related policies. Those could all be reduced by Biden. But there's other things that probably aren't going to be reduced by Biden. One is increasing national security concerns with regards to China and increasing tensions with China. China had been one of the biggest sources of our high skilled immigration. And I think that's going to be done for a while unless we take a large amount of, say, refugees from, um, you know, Hong Kong or whatnot. We're not going to see a lot of immigration from China. Uh, soon, probably, big, big things could change, but barring any big change, we're not going to see much uh, immigration from China because of the tensions. Um, you know, the national security apparatus is cracking down on Chinese researchers and employees at companies and students and anyone they think can be a spy. And uh, just the general tensions between the countries are making Chinese people less, uh, you know, willing to come here. This sort of, this, this, um, this little outburst of racism over uh, a coronavirus, you know, people's like, it's a Chinese virus or something. That's, you know, there wasn't a ton of violence, but there was a little bit of violence against Asian people in America. That's going to scare off Chinese immigrants um, and, you know, combine that with the, the tensions and improved opportunities in China. You know, China's economy is, is uh, now effectively a developed nation in, in many areas. And, um, and so that provides huge opportunities for skilled workers in China to remain in China uh, or even to go back if they've come to America. Meanwhile, you have massive racial tensions in America with the protests, with, uh, you know, um, sort of this uh, this this white supremacist backlash that be really began in like 
you know, Obama's presidency, but has gathered, you know, gathered force and sort of culminated with Trump and Charlottesville and some of these these alt-right kind of people. And then um, on the other hand, you have a whole bunch of people who are very dissatisfied with the status quo of race relations in cities and, you know, driving the protests and stuff. And I think that a lot of immigrants are going to feel like they're walking to the middle of a race war coming to America. Uh, and they're not, they're not wrong either. Um, uh, it's not a real war, but it's, uh, it's, it's something, it's, it's conflict. Um, and so I think that, and then there's coronavirus, you know, coronavirus shut off international travel. There's going to be a somewhat bad economy for a while. It's going to be skilled immigrants who really take it on the chin from a lot of, you know, layoffs and reductions of hiring and barriers to entry and all kinds of things. So I think that all of these factors are going to conspire to make American immigration uh, pause. And Biden might fail to reverse all of Trump's uh, restrictions, too, as we saw with Obama and the security state that George W. Bush put in as a response to 9-11. Obama didn't completely reverse it. And Biden might not completely reverse the uh, the, you know, measures against immigration that Trump has put in place. Yeah, no, maybe I can uh, uh, have us think a little bit about Alberto Alcina. Uh, which can help us think about some of the racial topics that we've talked about, as well as also immigration. And unfortunately, uh, Alicina recently passed away. Uh, in comparing, and he was a Harvard economist for our listeners, uh, in comparing countries, Alicina talked a lot about how it was more difficult to provide public goods or social safety nets when a country had sort of very deep ethnic divisions. And so uh, maybe you can close this podcast by reflecting upon us about what the lessons of Alberto Alcina could have for the present situation, and you know, is it feasible for the U.S. to to do much better? Well, right. So Alcina basically looked at a lot of these countries that are dysfunctional and said, um, "What can we see that's similar about these countries?" And he sees that a lot of them are the result of things like um, colonialism that carved up these artificial nations. With these, you know, if you look at maps of Africa or the Middle East, you'll see a lot of straight line boundaries that just obviously were made by some British functionary. And they cut across, uh, you know, ethnic groups. So um, he he noted that those countries that have more of those artificial borders tend to have worse public good provision and less redistribution. And he said, this is no coincidence. What happens is that uh, when you have ethnic divisions, not necessarily divisions in terms of like, you know, who actually like skin color or who, you know, language or things like that, but divisions in, in a sense, in a, in a, um, you know, sort of a sense of being on the same team, divisions of identity where one group of people in the country thinks doesn't really feel like they want to help and support the other groups of people in the country where people put their group in their group identity in their mind above the national identity. Um, then he saw worse outcomes in terms of redistribution and public goods. And obviously this is uh, the case in America for a different reason. You know, um, we didn't have artificial post-colonial boundaries, but we, we did have slavery. And we had, you know, the, the legacy of slavery created this whole social apparatus of racism where a lot of white people were told that black people were their inferiors, weren't real Americans, or just not to think about them and just forget about them. Um, and so you had this this form of racism that was the the legacy of slavery. 
And because of that division, uh, a lot of white people in America, not all, obviously, but a lot of white people have been reluctant to embrace welfare programs that would give, uh, you know, any money to black people or public goods like transit, uh, you know, that would that would benefit black people because there was this sort of racist idea that black people were less deserving and you had all these nasty racial stereotypes like black people are lazy uh, that were sort of promulgated as a way to reduce support for welfare or they had that effect anyway and they reduce support for public goods and this is a big problem for our country obviously every time you know, Democrats propose, oh, let's spend a bunch of money on roads. You know, let's like give people money so they can send their kids to childcare. You, uh, you get huge opposition from Republicans and conservatives. And, but you see this, this rhetoric, some people use dog whistles and, you know, sort of, they try to imply it and some people come right out and say it, but whatever it is, you see this rhetoric of black people don't deserve things. So government spending is bad. And this has been a, a sort of a pillar stated or unstated of conservative ideology over the past half century or, or more. And, um, and this is a big problem for our country because it means that we have trouble maintaining our roads. And it means that we have, uh, you know, we, we have a crappy welfare state and we have a crappy healthcare system too. And it's just getting to the point where it's not working anymore. So hopefully these protests are the beginning of a sign of more, you know, racial unity where finally a critical mass of white people decides, you know what, black people actually are our countrymen and deserve all the things we have. And we need to, uh, you know, maybe that and maybe that will increase support for public goods and, and welfare and all the other things we need. No, I guess maybe a, a, the final kind of thought or question is that are there any other emerging trends about COVID and the economy and all the things that you're keeping your eye on right now that you're going to circle for the month of July ahead and say, this is something that, um, that keep an, keep an eye on. So national tensions in the wake of coronavirus are something to keep an eye on. Pax Americana, this, this idea that America is this big, you know, uh, sort of global super cop who can, who can rush to use its overwhelming military might and diplomatic clout to put out fires. That's gone. Like, you know, this is, that's way gone. And, um, and now we're going to see gradually the return of great power conflicts and the return of localized conflicts um, uh, as a result of that, I think. And, it, you know, coronavirus has has illustrated deeply how dysfunctional and ineffectual American governance and capabilities have become. And that's a very dangerous thing because now China, you know, will have more confidence to, you know, bully India or, uh, or, you know, Taiwan, Japan, et cetera. And, um, and, you know, various, there will be various human rights abuses because there won't be this like sort of American led global consensus telling human rights abusers to cut it out. And so basically all of this stabilizing influence that we, uh, had come to know from the, uh, the late cold war and post cold war periods are, are kind of out the window. So I would keep an eye on great power conflict, war, uh, you know, unrest in other countries. We had this giant global wave of protests in 2019 uh, that could, something like that could come back or countries that didn't experience a wave then could now experience a wave. So I, I, I think everyone's paying attention to COVID in America and to race relations in America as they should be. Those are super important things and will continue to be important, but I'd look at other countries as well. 
Noah Smith is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and we thank him for joining us today to talk about politics, race, the economy, and COVID-19. Thanks, Noah. Thank you so much. Great to be on. Thank you for listening to this special episode of the Managing the Future of Work podcast. To find out more information about our project on the future of work and for more information on the coronavirus's impact, visit our website at hbs.edu forward slash managing the future of work and sign up for our newsletter.